go. Welcome to the Yucatastrophe, where we meander through politics, pop culture, church and society to consider true human ends and how life may be enchanted. I'm Joel, joined as always by Dave Taylor here. And Dave, I've got a question for you that I think demands immediate attention. Mm. And that is, what's your opinion on Judge Amy Coney Barrett? Um, well, thank you. Someone <laughs> asking my opinion at last. Um, it, it's uh, I was barely consulted on the process. Um, but uh, no strong opinion at all, except that America probably needs uh, a different a different system. Yeah, or just to stop. Yeah, just right? just stop it. Yeah, just stop it. Yeah, it is amazing, isn't it, that every time a judge in the United States of the Supreme Court uh, they follow this death watch, you yeah. know, is Ginsburg still alive, sort of thing. Mm. And then as soon as a judge passes on, the country goes into this kind of existential crisis. Mm. You know, based on nine people mm. determining what they see as their fate, right? As the as some writers are talking about it, they exercise a sovereign power because they get to determine who we, the people, are, right? Mm. You think this is amazing. It's quite an amazing system to, you know, and obviously some people see this as incredibly important, right? Mm. Forms of judicial review or legislation based on a Bill of Rights. And some people in Australia argue for this continually, right? I don't think that's, mm. I, I don't think it will get up in Australia. I don't think it should. Um, but, you know, this, this to me, it just sort of raises all this sort of um, discussion, raises how if you're um, interested in various issues of justice and so on, your real job is to engage in democratic formation, <laughs> right? It's not to then think we have to find an institution that's going to work yeah. for us, right? What do you mean by democratic formation? Well, well, take for instance how at the moment there's all this discussion over whether in America the Republicans have... Um, breached a convention that they created, namely you don't appoint a Supreme Court justice in the final year in the final year of um, that president's term, right? Now, whether it's a convention or not depends on whether there's mm. a historical practice that has been embedded amongst the institutions, uh, has become, you know, almost like a, uh, yeah, a practice over time, right, that shapes how you exercise constitutional power, mm. right? But it really just points to, well, actually, what you should be interested in is you need to... Um, have a better ground game to, you know, control the Senate, to control these institutions of democratic deliberation, um, to change things at that level. Because otherwise, you know, you can't do squat if mm. you're, like, constrained by, you know, a legal authority that's going to um, exercise its legal powers. You know, anyway, but that's quite aside <laughs> from the substance of this particular judge being appointed. I, I have no have no particular views on this. It is just amazing, mm. right, to think that this would be a system that some people say even some scholars in Australia would have at, at least at some point in time advocated. Mm. Fascinating. Well, is this anything to do? Well, I suppose there's, there's been some, some heightened uh, anti-Catholic rhetoric coming out of this. Um, and and actually, I've re been reading a few Catholic news agencies talking about a bit of a rise of anti-Catholicism and uh, desecration of Catholic sites throughout the United States. It's is, a fascinating one that, about the anti-Catholic rhetoric because it's absolutely it's absolutely there, right? Mm. Like there's absolutely elements of this that come in. They start comparing it to Handmaid's Tale, this supposed secretive charismatic Catholic group, mm. and so on, which doesn't seem all that secretive at yeah. all. Yeah. Um, you know, all these various things that are pointed to. But then the common response, common refrain from people is sort of like, no, there's a clear 
um, bifurcation of the person between yeah. their religious self and the political legal self, right? So their job will be to interpret the constitution, interpret the law, and so on. Now, there are good reasons for thinking in these ways, good democratic reasons for thinking these sorts of things, right, about how you interpret legislation and you know and what you bring to bear upon that. But it is fascinating in that um, suddenly you see uh, some commentators say, you know, um, known academics, Catholics on Twitter, for example, who would otherwise be quite keen on a sort of, um, you know, uh, shaping the the public culture and sort mm. of line with um, Catholic um, social teaching, Catholic orthodoxy, whatever, suddenly turn into, you know, almost bifurcated liberals, <laughs> which they say like, no, no, religion's not relevant to this. Yes, and if you yeah. raise it, it's, it's, it's bias, yeah. it's this and this. Now, I've, absolutely I've noticed can this be. a lot on Twitter, actually, yeah. It absolutely can be bias yeah. and animus and these sorts of things. But at the same time, it's like, well, actually, there's a much more interesting conversation, I think, about how you understand the interaction of civil authority mm. and spiritual authority, mm. right? How you understand. So, you know, and this goes to stuff I've, written on a little bit, but, you know, when you look at Augustine, right, he's writing letters to judges mm. and he's exhorting them in the exercise of their judicial power, right? Yep. And for the purposes, though, of the church, right, the cause of the church, mm. he calls it, in which he talks about exercising mercy in the judgment seat. That That's why he's yep. writing to them not to say something like, you know, Oh, and by the way, you've got corporations to, of people. Yeah, whatever. He's writing, you know, in the context of like when you are punishing people when you're doing yeah. this, you know, think of mercy. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and because he sees himself as a bishop that's still exercising authority with respect to these people that are part of his flock, they happen to be judges, right? Mm. He says the same thing when he's writing to military commandment commanders as well. You know, so there's a much more fascinating, I think, conversation about that interaction than you get kind of the standard approaches to say either mm. she's just going to be like, you know, handmaid's tale, which is just ridiculous, or on the other hand, oh, you know, it's completely irrelevant. You know, it's it's just, it's off the yeah. table. Yeah. Um, you know, it's got, you know, she's just going to be like, as though she's just a legal cipher or functionary. Yeah, that's right. But it's, I just find it interesting from the perspective of a lot of the rhetoric that's used against her Catholicism and then actually against Catholicism in general at the moment in America sounds like it's straight from the early 19th century. Oh, no, you go back, fur- <laughs> so, you go back yeah, further. Go yeah. back to Locke. Locke yeah. in a letter concerning toleration, right, yeah. says that you can't confuse the domains of politics and civil interest and the yeah. domains of religion. And those who would um, use religion on the pretense of public power he refers to, mm-hmm. right? Now, some people think he's referring to um, 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 like the Umar, right, and like Muslim communities um, who have a sort of, you know, uh, integral view of civil and spiritual authority, right? Mm. But actually, he's also referring to Roman Catholics, right? Yeah. That he says, basically, we can tolerate Roman Catholics if they're kind of like a Protestant, right? Yeah. If they understand their practices not as about forming a political community, mm. but as about the individual, you know, thinking in their heart of hearts that uh, the bread and the wine is the body and blood of Christ. That's okay. Yeah. That could be okay. But at the point where you start talking about matters of authority, mm. no, no, no. Now you're using religion for the pretense of claiming yeah. public power, right? So not just 19th century. We're going, I think that, that that's just a stream that runs through. Yeah. So uh, I should probably introduce the actual topic of the All right. All right. <laughs> so uh, Joel's book, uh, Post-Liberal Religious Liberty, Forming Communities of Charity um, has been released. Um, I've been lucky enough to be given a copy and have read it. Um, 
it doesn't have many pictures, <laughs> um, not not many salacious uh, anecdotes, uh, or limericks. Uh, so, but nonetheless, it was a fascinating read um, and an incredibly provocative read at times. Uh, but we're going to be spending uh, this episode and uh, the next episode as well um, talking through some of the central ideas of jo- Joel's book about. Uh, this fundamental kind of question of religious liberty, which seems uh, to be incredibly apropos at the moment. So, Joel. Let me ask you just first, why was it provocative? So, let me read the first line. Okay. (laughs) Religious liberty protects the quest for true religion. I think that's an incredibly provocative statement. Uh, The idea that I think... Uh, and we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you what exactly you mean by this uh, in a second, but the, even the idea that religious liberty exists to protect religion, that itself seems provocative um, today because I think we, we tend to think about um, people's um, sentiments more than the actual religion itself. Um, and then the idea of saying that, that not just religion but true religion, <laughs> uh, that, that itself seems like an incredibly provocative statement uh, particularly because we we don't really live in a cultural context where um, we talk about religious truth um, or categorize religion as true or false it's usually some sort of um, I don't know subjective uh, experience hmm. so I think it I, I think and this is what I think is so fascinating about your book and so provocative in that it provo- provokes thought um, that you begin your discussion of religious liberty with an understanding of what religion actually is and what it's aiming at. Um, and this seems to be quite distinct from other contemporary discussions. A lot of popular discourse around the nature of religion, especially when it's um, uh, connected with discussions of religious liberty. Hmm. Could you kind of characterise what you mean by religion, what it is, what it is? Uh, and what it's for and what it's trying to do and how's, how, how do you differentiate it from kind of other accounts of religion? So, Dave, uh, yeah, okay, so you read the first line, right? Religious liberty protects the quest for true religion. And then I, the second line says, <coughs> excuse me, second line says, it facilitates the free creation of communities of solidarity, fraternity, and charity, or what we, we may call right relationship, seeking the truth about God and instantiating this in manifold contexts. Okay, so that's that's the sort of crystallized yes. argument, and 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 it seems to me from the rest of your book that that's not a just a descriptive um, judgment about when, when I look at all these things that are designated religions. Oh, this no. is what they're doing. You're right. actually giving a normative account. No, of no. So what it's giving like is. a central account of what religion is aimed at. Yes, that it is a quest for something, and this yeah. is it. And that central account is narrated through Christian tradition yeah. here. Um, and that's because when we invoke the word religion, we can't, I think, can't actually have some, as some people would say, trans-historical, trans-cultural understanding of what that term mm. is. It's going to be embedded in some history, some tradition, some narratives, mm. right? And the question is, therefore, competing between those different uh, strands, those different histories, those different traditions, and so on, right? So, um, in this case, I'm saying, yes, true religion here refers to a quest of some kind. Um, now, what I'm 
echoing there is the use of, say, true religion by, say, Augustine, right? Mm. Where it's not about, you know, simply what goes on in an individual's pursuit and in, in their heart of hearts, right? So, um, it's actually turning away from this notion that it is, a, say, a quest of, say, personal conscience or autonomy or something. It's not simply for the individual, but actually true religion here is about our life together. Um, how do we live well together? What is our common good? And so I'm articulating there the shape of society as such in a religious frame, you know, is to cultivate communities of sol solidarity, fraternity, and charity. Um, and then the question is, how does political community, how does political authority further our attempt to reach that and instantiate it, right? Now, this, this, so, so true religion then is not just simply about, um, you know, an individual, but it's about what is the end of religion shaping the society as such, right? Mm. That's, if I can put it in broad terms like that. And a key argument within this book is that actually we're just faced with competing conceptions of true religion mm. based on competing narratives or competing traditions of thought. And the uh, one that I contrast with my own is, I call it, and others have called it this as well, uh, liberal egalitarian, right? Which is, and on the argument of the book, is still forged through a history of theological roots. But it points to the idea that we have an autonomous secular space that negotiates claims of right. Mm. Uh, in which religion must be distinguished as private and commonly associated. Religion here is now commonly associated with something like individual authenticity, right? Mm. Or the individual's capacity to pursue conceptions of the good or the individual's conscience um, understood in a capacious way um, or some, uh, like Cecile Laborde put it, um, integrity, mm. right? Some individual's integrity. So here, ultimately, true religion and its what is the end of religion and how does political authority support that? It's about protecting and furthering some conception of ethical individualism, right? Mm. So my own idea is in contrast to this, right? Well, when I say my idea, my idea narrating it through these different thinkers, where religion is about forming communities of solidarity, fraternity, or charity, which we say is love of God and neighbor or right relationship. And civil authority is to promote this, right, to encourage it, and so, in, in encouraging it, it must protect the free creation of communities that are seeking ultimately this good. Um, now, you know, how is that to develop a little more? How is that different? Um, yeah, so broadly, I think at the moment in, in religious liberty discourse, and it's interesting when we say religious liberty discourse because I, I think it, um, you can sometimes too narrowly think that this is just about a discrete legal doctrine, right? Mm. Religious liberty. A, dis a single right or mm. a single liberty, religious liberty. When actually, I think, it, hopefully, if you read um, this book, it's more about how, it's also about how this prism, religious liberty, allows us to access into questions of how we shape political community and society as such, right? Mm. So, it's actually, in the end, ultimately, it almost comes down to, you know, I call it contrasting political imaginaries, but we can think about contrasting ways to live together as a society, right? Yep. To compose our groups and individuals together to form a society, right? So, it's quite, in that sense, it's 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 theological, but it's, it's very political as well, right? Mm. Anyway, so... When, when people typically are thinking about religious liberty at the moment, um, you get kind of, they fall into largely a, or a dominant sort of way of thinking about it is to put religion into one of two categories. Um, either you, you, you characterize religion very capaciously, very broadly, mm. or 
you see religion is just a subset of ethical convictions. Yeah. So on the first account, you have someone like Ronald Dworkin, right? So Ronald Dworkin has this book that was published after he died called Religion Without God. And he says, you know, in a sense, we're all religious. Yeah. Uh, or we all potentially could be religious. And he refers to religion here as a sense of sort of the sublime. Yeah. And for him, this is like in the imminent uh, world around you. Mm. So, you know, a sense of the, seeing the Grand Canyon, for yep. example. And also, the and religion comes about for Dworkin as well in the person's quest for authenticity, yep. right? Um, that they find commitments that shape their life um, and, and integrate them in some way um, that produces an authentic life or a life that grips you as right for you, he says. Mm. And and often he associates this with certain intimate choices around sexuality, you know, what we typically call religious practice or matters of privacy and family and so on. But it becomes quite broad, right? Yeah. So in his book, Religion Without God, he says, you know, there's no real way for legal purposes and so on to distinguish between the hedonist drug taker mm. and the Native American who ingests peyote as a form of sacrament, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so religion in that way becomes this abstract category, right? Or it becomes increasingly abstracted into something like mm. quest for authenticity, um, personal autonomy, something like that, right? Isn't there? A, it reminds me of a, uh, there's a episode of Scrubs where um, <laughs> uh, JD, is JD the main character in that? It's been so long sure. since I've, I've seen it. But uh, he's, he's kind of mocking uh, uh, his friend Turk's Jehovah's Witness background, right? And saying like, you know, I respect your your beliefs. Like, look, I've got this, I've got this little monopoly, uh, monopoly piece that I keep in my pocket for luck. <laughs> yeah, but it seems like that that that's that's a caricature of what people often yeah, do and, with religion, and, and, saying my own little um, eccentricities or eccentric preferences are equivalent to someone's participation in this tradition. And 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 Dworkin explicitly refers to eccentricities, yeah. right? That you could um, this could amount to eccentricities. Now various writers including Dworkin at certain stages of his writing, but various writers then try and distinguish, right, mm. between things that are really about say ethical convictions and so on and things that are not. Mm. Um, so Martha Nossbaum talks about, you know, the faculty with which we pursue ultimate questions sort of thing. And she mm. says we can't alight on we don't can't say that people must alight on an answer to that. And we can't judge that answer. But nevertheless, she wants to distinguish this from like trivial tastes, she says. So she gives an example just to mm. give you a funny one. There's a um, uh, well-known obscure case, paradox, yeah, mm. anyway, in the United States about a, a man who claimed that he, um, he, he needed to wear a chicken suit yeah. when in court. And um, actually, he was, uh, I think in the end, it was decided he could. But, um, but... Martha Nelson says, oh, this is clearly trivial and or insincere or something like this. In which case, I mean, I, and I mentioned this in the book just in passing, it's, it's like a theological assessment has been made, mm. right? So these writers focus in on the sincerity of the person developing what they understand as their own ethical convictions and so on, right? Yeah. And yet they still want to then overlay with that often a distinguishing between, oh, that's the trivial and that's not, right? Despite the fact that the entire prism is about how does the individual see mm. these convictions right i mean uh john rawls referred to as conceptions of the good i'm talking about conceptions of the good he talked about the person who spends their life counting blades of grass right mm. um 
Dworkin keeps referring to matchbox collecting, you know, yeah. sort of thing. So there is they don't they 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 kind of are haunted by the by a hierarchy of a perhaps higher good. Yeah. But their liberalism, their commitment to ethical individualism, mm. sort of undercuts that, right? Mm. Then the second the second way people think about religion, so there's that abstract into a compacious category. Now, the second way I think is just actually a version of the first, right? But basically they may see religion as a category, but just one subset of ethical convictions. Yeah. So, you know, if you're a Kantian moralist, you um, deontologist, you know, that's, that's the equivalent functionally to being, say, a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, mm. or things like this, right? And so, you know, um, Cecile Laborde will talk about integrity protecting commitments. Now, she sees that mm. as basically um, moving away from focusing on religion mm. because equality demands that. Yep. So, in a context of pluralism, we're all, you know, plural identities and so on. Um, we can't favor religion because that would be privileging one ethical conviction over another. So, she says, well, religion is just a category of integrity. Pr- mm. integrity. Now, I-, I argue in my book essentially that I think all those sort of conceptions, their roots, they, they have theological um, they can be narrated theologically. Mm. So, if you take Dworkin, for example, um, and he talks about, you know, um, the authenticity of the individual, it's clear in his book, he even appeals explicitly to, for example, Paul Tillich's mm. understanding of the ultimate concern. Tra- take out God, Tillich says, and translate into that whatever is your ultimate concern. Yep. So, there's a kind of liberal Protestantism yep. that is at root of this abstraction. So, they don't get away from religion in mm. ways. They've just abstracted it based on a new understanding of mm. true religion. And then what they say is that the political community must support that, yeah. right? It must facilitate that. So, Dworkin says we need a new understanding of the res publica in which the uh, purpose of political community and authority is to further ethical freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Right, ethical individualism. And so we have a very different understanding of what society is for mm. that arises from a very under different understanding of what religion is, right? Yeah. Or different narrations there. But there's all there's almost uh, an and you you're alluding to that there with this by your discussion of the kind of secularized theology. But there's almost like um there's also some metaphysics at play there mm. around uh that okay, uh, obviously um, the religion itself never points to anything beyond itself. It doesn't point to anything metaphysical. Uh, so you know what matters is the authenticity or the integrity of the individual participant, rather than the possibility that actually the what the religion that the person's participating in actually points to something transcendent mm. that's actually there. Mm. Uh, and I was thinking about this. I was. I, I was reading your book, funnily enough, alongside Graham Greene's uh, The Power and the Glory, and um, which is a new favourite book of mine, actually. It was an incredible read. But that, that's a story about um, a priest in Mexico at a time where the part of Mexico that he lives in, religion has been banned, and it's about this terrible priest who is horribly sinful and has done terrible things. Nonetheless, he stays and delivers the sacraments. Um, with the threat of death hanging over him the whole time. And at the same time, with this awareness that he is in a state of mortal sin and has no one to confess to. And it was an incredibly powerful read because it, it, you enter into this, the world of this person's Catholicism and you realise um, that you rarely encounter anything like this in literature or in popular discourse where 
this stuff really matters. Mm. This stuff really matters and is of eternal consequences. And what matters isn't this person's own sense of integrity. You really get this sense that perhaps this person's soul is in peril. Um, and the the why I was interested in your the, the account of you know it's there to protect the religious quest, like the, that religious liberty, that that surely the state needs to recognise that as a possibility, that perhaps the religious quest points to something um, so be, go, beyond just social conditions or, so, uh, yeah. uh, or a social institution. So there's a lot in what you just said there. One is, you know, you know, pointing to a lot of writers now say this, that different judges and legal commentators lack a certain um, empathetic, empathetic mm. capacity to understand religious persons, right? Mm. There's a lack of literacy that goes mm. on there. Um, and then there's about the metaphysical point mm. I want to come to as well. And then just what you've said there about surely the state should recognize the, the possibility. See, uh, my argument's stronger than that, right? So yeah. Ron, uh, Ron Williams makes this point about um, a just state will recognize the possibility of individuals wanting to pursue this quest. And to mm. me, that sounds too close to um, we're just recognizing that individuals have their um, their dreams and pursuits, right? Yeah. Um, whereas what I take is more like, is I think more Augustinian um, or more rigorously so, in which he says, you know, right flows from the source of rightness. Okay. So it's actually about you know, the, what, what religious liberty ultimately is most secured by is the political community itself understanding that we are together. There is a, there is a quest for mm. a common good and that common good is love of God and neighbor. Um, right flows from the source of rightness, Augustine says, which is to say when we are rightly oriented to God, our relationships will actually, as a matter of participation, flow from that. Um, Pope Francis talks about the mystical um, fraternity becoming our own fraternity, right? Um, our own, uh, so actually shaping the life of the community as such. Mm. Um, now, your point then about m the metaphysical, yeah. So all these liberal writers like like Dworkin or Cecile Laborde, they will argue that they're not saying anything metaphysical or excluding, you know, metaphysical claims and so on. They're just making a political argument, mm. right, about the shape of political morality, namely mm. that the political authority um, should uh, exercise its powers uh, for the sake of a conception of ethical individualism, right? Mm. Um, now, I think this is problematic for a number of reasons. One, you know, if you look at Dworkin just by himself, he, he does actually make a lot of theological statements as well in his mm. writing. He talks about how we can't simply point at God as the source of, say, good because good is independent of God, he argues. Yeah. As a, as a, you need a moral argument for God's commands being good. And he sees God very voluntaristically, mm. right? Do this. And then you have the question, well, why should I do that? You need, on his argument, then an independent argument for why that would be a good thing. So mm. why should the political community care about what God says, right? Um, now, that's very voluntaristic, right? Yeah. And it's based on a notion that God is just a being like any other who issues commands like a sovereign does, yeah. right? Um, and that's got a long history to it, yes. that sort of idea. But then you take this more generally, right? The metaphysical point is how do you get to a point where God is irrelevant, mm. Um, so it's not that they make a claim like God does not exist, mm. you know, or something like that. It's not as basic as that. It's more like how how do you get to a point where you have to invent secular autonomy, mm. right? The logic of the secular now being that this is autonomous of a new category called religion, that is autonomous of it because it's about the logic of it is um, negotiating, furthering, managing individual claims, 
individual rights. Now, how do you get to that point, right, uh, in which you shift from a notion of participation in God in which our role, our job is to collectively discern together what it means to compose right relationship hmm. uh, in light of our ends and God's own self to an understanding that, no, there is this autonomous space that exercises authority independent of those ministrations, independent of that participation in God's own life, right? Mm. And so, you know, to give an example, Jürgen Habermas says, you know, we've, we don't have any need for a theological warrant anymore. He says, we started with theology as our basis for political unity. And then he says, we then introduced metaphysics, and uh, but we got more rational as we went along, he says, mm. And um, and what we now have is constitutionalism, right? Mm. Political science and constitutionalism as the basis for our collective unity. Um, our collective then commitment, he says, to egalitarian equal regard for one another. Mm. Um, and he says, and this is kind of, you know, shows that we've shifted away from the need for theolo- theology. And what you'd call that in uh, literature, you'd call it like a stripping away narrative. Yep. As though we just stripped away this veneer of theology to re- realize the rational underpinnings, right? Yeah. And Charles Taylor in response says, this is just its own form of sort of theological order. Yeah. In which you've created what he calls the modern moral order, which political community now exists to negotiate and sort of protect us against each other. Mm. And we had to get there through what, again, Taylor calls an accidental terrain, right? Yeah. Uh, in which you now create, well, how is it that we have a political authority that sees itself as you know, exercising issue uh, commands and so on, independent of God, mm. and individuals doing the same. Yeah, it seems to be that this is a this is a um, process that uh, has been engaged in from a number of different sources, where people from your own framework or Charles Taylor, but then even people like critical theorists like Giorgio Gambin or even earlier Walter Benjamin, they do quite the opposite, where they that to Habermas, where they uh, strip away the le- the layers of legal positivism, uh, constitutionalism, and actually find that there's a theology buried underneath. Right. So it's not that the theology is being stripped away to to the rational, so that the rational, you can actually strip away the rational or the, pu- pu- the r- purportedly rational to see that there's actually a type of theology embedded. Yeah, yeah. And like you'd see this obviously in some, so there's different currents that you'd see like with Schmidt, right? Mm. Saying that all our secularized concepts are just theologized, uh, you know, um, secularized theolo- theological concepts. Yes, yeah. uh, secularized theological concepts. That's right. And 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 so the angle I'm cutting at it from is saying essentially, and you know, developing this in one of the chapters, how do you um, these liberal egalitarians who point to this understanding of political community, how does that arise? How do you shift from this notion of um, a sort of cosmic understanding of right ordering towards an understanding of autonomous secular order? And then what are the implications for that? Mm. So, you know, so, uh, yes, you've got these competing accounts of political authority and true religion, the relationship between them and so on. Uh, but what we see as well is that that liberal egalitarian account, I think, and I argue in this book, is that it, it creates sort of paradoxes in which you could think that it, that it uh, allows for this great explosion of ethical individualism, each person pursuing a thousand flowers may bloom, mm. right? Okay. And yet, what we actually see is the what you what I call in the book flattening containing. Mm. So, if all identities are just simply abstract instances of this capacious understanding of religion, then they are equally of little weight. 
essentially. You know, when faced with a state or political authority that wants to regulate them. Why should my... Um, so take at the moment, right, um, you know, pandemic life in which apparently, you know, you can't, uh, during the Victorian lockdown, you couldn't get married. Mm. I mean, that seems amazing to me, right? Yeah. You know, why, but why should that, my desire to participate in a sacramental marriage, mm. be any different to, say, somebody's desire to congregate and form close relationships, mm. right? You know, because they're equally of the same category. Yeah. And so they're equally subject to the law, right? Yeah. So there's a well, flattening your des- desire to congregate with your friends at the pub versus uh, right, attending a mass. Right, right. And so they're equally subject to the law. So there's yeah. a flattening that takes place. And then there's containing, which refers to, you know, these are fundamentally private matters, religion demarcated from the secular space mm. as private in some sense. Um, and so if they start then creeping into public, there's a confusion. Mm. So if, for example, schools start, um, they exit that private space of worship and we start engaging in education. Well, now you're into our public space and so you should be regulated like any other private choice. Right. And this leads to, I guess... So, uh, what, what the point is there is that actually um, there's an understanding of both how do we imagine our society together? Yep. What's the goal, right? Um, how do we live well? Yep. And there's competing accounts going on. And then also then within that... Um, there's the question of religious liberty then becomes, well, actually, how do you manage things like pluralism? How do you manage things like religious difference? How do you manage things like genuine concerns of, you know, um, religious uh, formation and all mm. these sorts of things when you've got a, if you have a, if you have an argument that basically leads to that flattening out mm. of differences I mentioned, and also the containing of them. So, and uh, well, well, I'll just get you to kind of introduce these ideas and we'll pick them up on our next episode. But it's it's interesting there where all forms of association are flattened out and treated as equivalent. But at the same time, in your account, you're suggesting that as well as the construction of this modern uh, understanding of the religious, you've also got a, a kind of uh, a simultaneous development of a modern conception of the secular, which is quite distinct from... Uh, the say medieval classical or classical mm. understanding of the sacred and the secular. Do you want to just introduce us to that development? And yeah. Ra- so the the secular now is understood, as I said, as like a, a form of autonomous logic. So in the book, I discuss secularization as sort of fundamental mm. to liberally egalitarian accounts. Yeah. And and so what was it? How would the secular have been conceived of? Say, yeah. In the yeah, Middle yeah. Ages? So so yeah. so basically, I mean, just on the the contrast because the the liberal egalitarian relying on secularization the idea is there's a differentiation has taken place Mm. the stripping away of religion into its private sphere and the then realizing of this autonomous secular space of politics and economics for example Mm. and that's been you know criticized and it has real problems in ways you could look at it as just it's actually you've created the religious sphere because prior to that Mm. prior to that you don't have this stripping away you have this um, well, you don't really talk about religious spheres because as uh, Milbank writes in one piece, he says, you know, um, bridges were also shrines to the Virgin. Mm. Um, you know, so uh, uh, secularization theorists like Peter Berger talks about, you know, the 
the differentiation as fundamental and constitutive yeah. to modernity. And guild, but actually, you could think of it as no, it's just that's where you create this category yeah. called or religion. In, in economics, guilds had patron saints. And, right, exactly. And, guilds have patron and, saints and, and had um, and they managed, within the church as well. They managed yeah. the upkeep of churches yeah. and things like yeah. this, right? So um, the secular shifts as well, then from this, uh, you know, so now it's this notion of autonomous logic. Whereas what I'm trying to reground here is more a notion of secular as um, sort of time-bound, right? So mm. Augustine refers to the saculum as a sort of time-bound space before the eschaton, right? Mm. And 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 some people see that as in Augustine's writing as meaning that it's it's essentially like a liberal political space in which you try and manage difference. No, I don't think that's right for Augustine. I think what he's I think what's going on there is actually the saculum becomes a space in which there is a differentiation of a kind, mm. but for the ends of the city of God. So basically you do have civil authority differentiated from the church, but civil authority is differentiated because it exercises coercive authority. And the church itself is not to be a coercive power. This is my argument around Augustine, or it's not just my argument, but others as well, um, that Augustine says, yes, there is a certain differentiation that takes place because we're in the time of the saculum, but... And I think fundamentally, Augustine says, even the civil authority, which mm. we now think of as this autonomous secular political space, mm. that civil authority, he argues, should be exercising its power and even its coercive power mm. under the ministrations of spiritual authority, under the ministrations of the church and for the ends of the city of God, mm. right? And so for the ends of the city of God, in which I start talking about as, you know, you could talk about as peace, as Augustine mm. talks about it, or you could talk about it as living well, mm. as Aquinas talks about it, or as I develop in here, solidarity, fraternity, and charity, right? Mm. So the saculum's there in the sense that the church doesn't exercise all authority, right? Yeah. Um, and nor would it in the eschaton, according to you know, Revelation. It's, it's a city. It's mm. there. It's not the church. But but anyway, it's not exercising all authority. So there is a differentiation from political authority, but its political authority is still fundamentally governed by coordinate uh, aimed towards a certain end. Mm. So that probably brings us about to the end of um, our time this week. Uh, so we're going to continue on in this discussion next week where... So we've mapped out um, kind of companion conceptions of religion. We've uh, talked a little bit about the development of the idea of the secular um, and how that has changed over history. Uh, next uh, week, we're going to be talking a bit about different attempts by Christian theorists to negotiate um, concepts of li religious liberty um, in the modern paradigm. Um, and then we're also going to be talking really at the heart of the uh, about the heart of the argument of Joel's book about uh, his account of how religious liberty ought to be conceived of in our time. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, please follow us on Facebook. You can find us by just searching the Eucatastrophe. Um, please follow us on Twitter. You can find us at Eucat, E-U-C-A-T underscore podcast on Twitter. Please write us a review if you haven't already on whatever platform you listen to us on. Um, and also uh, share us around. That really helps us to get um, our podcast out there. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.